Please be seated, everyone. And ask your animal questions to Andrew afterwards. You may have heard the Jewish experts counted 613 separate commands in the Old Testament. I've never double-checked that statistic. But it meant a popular quest in Jesus' time was to speculate over which command was the greatest. Did one command somehow sum up the essence of the whole thing? Obviously that can be simplistic, life is more complex, but it can also give focus. Uh, Modern companies also have mission statements to distill the essence of what they're on about into a single summary purpose. Google wants to organise the whole world's data and make it accessible. Do you know they also have an unofficial motto, which sounds very much like a great command. Do you know their motto? Do no evil. Sorry, avoid being evil. Avoid being evil. Uh, Our modern world's great command is, don't you go judging me. Don't you judge me. Old-fashioned tolerance meant we'd be kind and respectful to those we disagree with instead of rude or aggro. Now political correctness means not criticising anyone's lifestyle choice or opinion because diversity rules. Everybody's right, no one's wrong except the person who wants to say something's wrong. That's narrow-minded. To express a traditional moral view on matters of sex or, for example, the sanctity of life, that's automatically taken to be rejecting the person with a different opinion or lifestyle. To criticise another religion, well, it must mean rejecting the people of that belief. In reality, we've replaced tolerance with unconditional acceptance, a demand for it. At least acceptance of those who believe counters progressive in some way. And we get the message, acceptance will extend to Christians if you stay quiet, keep your beliefs private, But you can't be accepted, not if you insist on expressing biblical beliefs, no matter how politely. Of course, don't you judge me, works well at the personal level too. You know, someone criticises everything we do. So what do we do? Throw out the charge of hypocrisy. Who are you to judge me? Why is everyone so negative? Can't we just live and let live? And we can fend off the slightest question over our conduct by raising the spectre of judgmentalism. So we come to the Sermon on the Mount's judgment principle in Matthew 7. And this judgment principle appears up front, Matthew 7 verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. When you read it, seems like the new great command of society has something going for it. Don't judge others. Otherwise, you deserve to cop it yourself. And we'll let you have it, you bigot. Sure you don't want that. So don't judge, not our opinions, not our actions. End of the story. It would make a very short sermon. Actually, that's how people love to quote the Bible. One short bit. To make the point that suits them to support their agenda. But intuitively, I don't think you can read this verse in the context of the passage and actually think that's really the end of the story. First one can't possibly be an absolute. There's an old saying that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Write it down if you've never heard it before. A text, that's a single verse or bit of scripture. Without a context, 
that's without reference to the surrounding verses in their historical setting, is a pretext, a lame excuse, for a proof text where you end the debate by giving your killer verse that you reckon proves your point. So when Philippians 4 verse 13 famously says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it doesn't mean I can lift my Mazda wagon single-handedly into the air. The context tells you that the all things I can do is talking of Christians enduring all situations, hunger or poverty, and not just being well-fed or well-off. And I'm saying here that the context tells you Jesus cannot be banning disciples from making any kind of judgment about any people's beliefs or conduct or character. Look down to verse 5, because it speaks of removing the speck from your brother's eye once you've got your own vision corrected. Removing a speck implies a problem. You've judged that something's wrong with the person. Look at verse 6. Jesus says not to throw your pearls before pigs. You've got to discern who the pigs are, don't you? Calling someone a pig? If that's not a character judgment, I don't know what is. In fact, a little later, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. And verse 16, to recognise them by their fruit, by their conduct. So at least three times in verse 1's immediate context, Jesus tells his followers to make assessments. The teaching, the conduct, the character of others. Which reminds me of another principle of sound Bible reading. Don't read one part of scripture so it contradicts another. Do you think Jesus is really so silly as to repeatedly contradict himself in the space of 15 verses? I think not. Verse 2 helps us see Jesus' teaching in verse 1 is fundamentally about an attitude. Verse 2 begins with the word for that connects verse 2 with verse 1 as an explanation or an expansion. For, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The kind of attitude you use to others will be the approach God uses towards you. Are you generous in assessing others? You can expect God to be generous to you. Are you harsh? Well, why would you expect anything different back? In fact, this verse says there's no way of escaping God's judgment. Because a literalistic interpretation of verse 1 says, oh well, I'll never make any assessment of any other person, form any opinion on any topic so I can escape judgment. Silly. Verse 2 says you will be judged. Everyone, it says, will give an account of their lives to God at God's judgment seat on the final day in the present world. But what way will you be judged? Wouldn't you want it to be with mercy? Verse 2 says it's a make-believe world to think you can set up standards for others to conform to but give yourself an exemption. A critic unable to see his or her own faults is suffering from the worst kind of blindness. So I want to reframe, reframe Jesus' judgment principle this way. Don't be judgmental. That is, I'm saying there's a difference between do not judge and don't be judgmental. Being judgmental is the self-righteous, fault-finding mentality. Another way to put it is this. Matthew 7 says, be humble, not harsh in your judgments. Humble, not harsh in your judgments. Verses 3 to 5 illustrate the humility. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, of course, it's exaggeration. You can't fit a plank of wood in your eye, which suggests Jesus had a good sense of humour. I can imagine him, I can see him sort of impersonating an eye surgeon, blundering around with a big 4 by 2 bit of timber in front of his face, saying, yep, I've got this covered. Sometimes people can't see the inconsistency of their own conduct. Other times they, they know it's there, but they, they think their own problem's not going to affect their judgment in trying to help or, or correct the other person. Oh, I can be impartial. The point is, don't try and fix someone else when you've got a big unresolved problem of your own, especially if it affects the same part of your life as theirs. In this case, your vision. The solution, verse 5, is humility. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, I'm personally very familiar with vision problems. I've worn glasses since... Year one, age six, uh, I think it's about minus eight or whatever. Uh, I, I, I very much know uh, I need the right prescription to see. Uh, right now, uh, we're trying to trim the claws on our budgie, which have grown too long, too sharp. Uh, now, I bred budgies as a teenager. I've done it before. But a budgie has such tiny feet and it, and it kicks when you grab it. Let me tell you, even though I've done it before with experience, I like to have help and uh, we go to the brightest part of the room that's got the most light in our house before the operation so, so I can see the vein and how far it goes to the end of the claw. It's not saying that you don't try to help when you see a problem, but it's that you make sure you've dealt with any impediments in your own situation and you don't overestimate your own abilities especially you don't go thinking you're better than others. Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers or sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Humility knows temptation is common to mankind, myself included. But the best way of all to feed humility is to look to the cross. Old hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. John Stott said, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying, nothing in history cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Well, with that we come to uh, verse 6's Dogs and pigs. I've actually got digs and pigs in my notes, but I think that's a misprint. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Sort of a pretty obvious metaphor. 
Uh, don't put your cat's food out on your grandma's fine china. Uh, but, you know, how does it apply? Jesus doesn't really tell us, you know, what, what are these holy things? What are the pearls? Um, who are the dogs and pigs? Well, it's clearly unworthy recipients, but... And the experts say, yes, it is a little hard to see the flow. How does this connect with what's just already come? One possible clue is that the context was correction, correcting with humility, not harshness, but correcting all the same. So possibly this is about not wasting effort correcting someone who's proven stubborn and unteachable. Again and again in the book of Proverbs, it's the fool who won't listen to advice. And so there's a time, Proverbs says, not to answer a fool's folly or else you'll sink to his level. A real temptation, isn't it, to shoot back a smart answer straight away, to show the error of his ways without stopping to think if it's likely to help or whether it might just pour petrol on the fire. I think possibly there's a principle here for evangelism um, because the gospel of Jesus is arguably the most sacred or holy thing of all. There is some discernment about how and when you share it. If someone's you know, full of anger or abuse, maybe you hold off until another time. There might even, as some scholars say, be a concern for the disciples' safety here. Don't keep pushing the gospel on someone who shows no inclination to listen. You can take a break. Jesus later says instructions to, to those who won't receive teachers of his message. There may even be a time, he says, to wipe the dust from that village off your feet and move on. And by the way, I want to say verse 6 doesn't give us a license to actually label people. You dogs, you pigs. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 22, warned us against calling people fools or morons. This is not an encouragement to call people scornful names. It might make you feel better, it just belittles others and it's the reverse of the humility we've just seen. It's making assessments. Well, the judgment principle has taken most of our time tonight. Uh, it was on purpose Uh, Because the prayer principle here, verses 7 and 11, it really picks up material already covered a couple of times in chapter 6. Look back to verses, uh, look down to 7, 7 to 8. Ask and it will be given you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. I think the vocabulary of seeking might remind you of chapter 6, verse 33, seek first God's kingdom. The metaphor of asking reminds us of how to pray. Chapter 6, say verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask. People in Jesus' day often had to worry about their daily bread, where their next meal was coming from. As Andy said last week, we worry about fashion and foodie culture. We worry about a foothold in a, a premier real estate market but God loves us better than the flowers of the field he dresses so beautifully and so once again here we're encouraged to ask God to pray to seek his will his kingdom instead of worrying which won't do a thing anyway the extra prayer principle that comes out in these verses I think is to expect good things expect good things 
Expect good things because he's your father in heaven. What's verses 9 to 11 illustrate? Which of you, if your son asks for... That was, that was a bit of extra unauthorised in Cathy's reading, wasn't it? A penny dropped. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then know you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Uh, we, we, we're talking, just notice, we're talking about needs rather than wants, I think. Um, using bread and fish as examples, they're the basic foods. I mean, remember how many of the disciples were fishermen, daily kind of food. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 8 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. It's just like most sensible mums and dads don't give their kids lollies every time they ask, since they know so much sugar is not good for you. Well, neither will God always give us all we ask when we ask it, if it's not for our ultimate good, which, after all, he can see ahead to so much better than we can. And so, like Andy said last week, there's no blank check here for prosperity gospel that the promises endless blessing in this life now. But having noted that caution... Don't miss the positive invitation to ask. Here we pray. It's not the resignation of, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. It is an invitation to ask eagerly, like a child asking its parents for good things. That Christmas enthusiasm. So, don't we pray? Lord, please heal this person. Please help that one find a job. That's our heart's desire. Yes, and even more, help them to grow in character through this hardship. And we never give up on someone. Lord, short time or long, please unstop the deaf ears of my friend who refuses to listen to Jesus with an open mind. I really liked what R.T. France wrote in his commentary identifying in these words, I quote, a willingness to explore the extent of God's generosity, securing the knowledge that only what is good will be given, so that mistakes in prayer through human short-sightedness will not rebound on those praying. Freely ask. Now, once again, the experts say verses 7 to 11 seem a little disconnected to the verses before. I wonder if one connection is in the idea of giving good things ourselves, which is the assumed background here. Verse 11, Jesus says even evil or sinful humans generally give good gifts to their kids. This passing comment teaches two parts to our doctrine of humanity. Firstly, Jesus teaches, just say it, all humans are evil. Our sin, no matter how small it seems, it corrupts our whole life so that Jesus labels us evil here. Would you drink a glass of water if you knew it had just just a couple of drops of cyanide in it? Well, of course not. Even a little poison compromises the whole drink. Well, most of our sins are not so little as we suppose, but even a little sin compromises our holiness. We cannot stand before a holy God 
while ever our sin remains unforgiven. And so once again I say, look to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus. The other thing Jesus teaches us here is that even sinful people do good things. This is what we sometimes call the doctrine of God's common grace. He preserves us from being as bad as we might. And because he's made all humans in his image, then even people who reject him can still in some pale way reflect his goodness. And so you get stories of of love and courage from all kinds of flawed people, people of all religions and none. That's down to the grace of God in common to all people, whether or not they realise it. Now, I guess I'm just saying, we who recognise the saving grace of God in Jesus should be at the forefront of demonstrating such common grace, such kindness and goodness and courage for the sake of others. We should be the people who give good gifts. We should be the people who are not harsh in our judgments but humble, who seek to speak the truth in love. So I began by saying the new great command was, don't you judge me. I conclude by giving you the true great command. It's verse 12 really. So in everything, do to others what you'd have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This has long been called, you know it, the golden rule. The golden rule. Many people claim, ah, this teaching's found in many other religions, but actually... You normally only find it in the so-called silver rule format. Do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Yeah, it's sensible, but that's negative. It's about not annoying others. Jesus' form is positive. It's about actively loving people for their good, doing good stuff for them. And in doing it in such a way, you'd like the good things to be done for you. Most experts say this verse summarises not just chapter 7 here, but everything actually from chapter 5 verse 17. That 5 verse 17 spoke of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. And now he says loving others the way you'd like them to love you sums up the law and the prophets. Not summarising all topics the law or prophets raise, so it doesn't mention the sacrificial system or the correct worship of God. But 5.17 and 7.12 are like bookends around the righteousness greater than the Pharisees that Jesus tells his disciples to seek. We could say 7.12 summarises Jesus' righteousness ethic for disciples. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Judge as you'd like to be judged. Don't always think the worst of others since no one likes that themselves. And I think we've seen Matthew 7, it's humility implies you suspect yourself before you suspect others. How do we apply this then to public discussion? Well, I'm saying, don't you go judging me is, is a poor result for our society. Now, I can, you can understand that the way people dump on each other, you know, judgmentalism is horrible. If you're familiar with debates on on Twitter or Facebook, this is a pretty good time to remember not to cast your pearls before swine. 
to pause before you go in swinging. But this no judging is a misapplication of the silver rule. You know, it's, it's telling you to avoid something that feels unpleasant. But sometimes respectful correction is exactly the love we need to grow. Firm but polite disagreement can be exactly what people need to expand their minds, to learn. Wouldn't you want to be loved that way if you were headed down the wrong path? Wrapping up, Jesus' words call us to be neither harsh nor naive. Society's new great command to never judge is wrong. We should not ignore people's sins and just pretend everything's okay. But our judgments should be humble, not harsh. Those we disagree with must somehow keep sensing we love them. I'll finish with a quote that struck me from um, one of the English church planters, Steve Timmis. One of the features of contemporary culture is the loss of creative dialogue and healthy debate. People no longer have convictions, just opinions. But among God's people, this ought not to be. We can hold opinions, but ought to do so without rancour towards brothers and sisters who don't share them. We should have convictions, but no matter how firmly convinced we are, we should always hold them with a pinch more love than certainty.